Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, the markets have gotten hit with a one-two punch. A hawkish pivot from the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and a new sort of alarming variant of the coronavirus that's spreading around the world. Will these two combine to form the Grinch who stole the Santa Claus rally? We'll get into it with a Goldman alum who is now the chief investment officer at Kestra Investment Management. But first, Vildana, I, I wanted to thank you for holding down the fort for the last couple of weeks while I was out. I uh, I was actually, first my wife got COVID and then I got COVID. And um, as you know, I'm not usually on time with things like COVID, you know, the, the early adopters got it almost two years ago. And here I, I'm, I'm finally getting it now, you know, I'm... I, it's 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 right on brand for me. Like I'm I'm still listening to Taylor Swift songs, uh, the scooter versions. Uh, you know, to, to to give you an idea. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Don't yeah. say that. You're going to offend a lot of podcast <laughs> listeners. I'm trying to I'm trying to recalibrate the jokes to to your generation. But anyway, uh, Vildana, tell us about this week's guest. I just met her for the first time. I'm I'm excited. What, what do we know about? What's your intel on this guest? Well, first I want to say welcome back, and we really missed you on the podcast. I don't believe I don't believe that. In fact, I haven't even listened because I assumed you spent the whole time roasting me on on the last two episodes. So I'm a little bit. So yeah. maybe don't re-listen to them, but I did miss you. I'm glad to have you back. And I want to thank everybody who helped fill in over the last couple of weeks. But then let's bring in our guest. Her name is Kara Murphy. She's the chief investment officer of Kestra Investment Management. Kara, I spoke with you recently. I had so much fun talking to you, and I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And you guys promised me it would be fun. So it was an easy yes. <laughs> it's supposed to be fun. It's a really high bar. <laughs> well, uh, Kara, tell us a little bit about Kestra. I don't know a lot about the firm. So just give us sort of the the, the overview uh, about Kestra and, and how you ended up there. It's It's only been a few months you've been there, right? That's right. That's right. So we are a wealth management firm with a number of different um, channels. So there's Kestra Financial, which has um, advisors all throughout the country. Uh, Grove Point, uh, we also work with Arden Trust Company and then Blue Spring. So we have a number of different channels and ways in which we work with financial advisors. As you said, I joined a number of months ago to build out Kestra Investment Management and so my remit is really to build out investment resources, research, commentary, strategies to be able to assist advisors in managing their clients' wealth. So it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to kind of have a blank sheet of paper and build something that we think is going to be really helpful and valuable to advisors. And I want to get into some of your strategy and how you're thinking about things, but just to start things off with the big events that we had this week, because it was a really, really busy week. as. Mike mentioned we had these headwinds that really weren't here a couple of days ago. 
We have the new variant plus a Federal Reserve that potentially could be withdrawing stimulus at a much faster pace than we had previously thought. So how are you thinking about this and how are some of these developments impacting your strategy? Yeah, as you said, it's been a very interesting week. You know, you kind of come back from a holiday and hope it'll be a little quiet, but it never quite works out that way. Um, But it's not too dissimilar um, to where we were over the summer. Um, So just as the Delta variant was getting going, we were starting to understand that it was much more contagious and we were starting to see rapid um, case increases in the U.S., And that happened just at a time when the Fed was gearing up to start withdrawing stimulus. Um, So as those two things unfolded around the same time, um, Delta ended up becoming more of a headwind than maybe some had initially thought. And that actually got the Fed to hit the pause button a bit and, and pushed out expectations for tapering and for Fed rate hikes. Now roll forward a couple months more and the kind of stakes on both sides have increased a little bit where we have another kind of unknown variant. We know that the market hates unknowns. So in the absence of information, people often go to dark places, right? So so the market is sometimes assuming the worst about this new variant. At the same time that we're seeing more evidence of inflationary pressures. And and I I think we should break down kind of what's driving some of these inflationary pressures. But clearly the stakes have gotten higher for the Fed. And so we've seen a, a big change in language from Powell and the market's starting to pull forward expectations for tapering and Fed rate increases. Well, Carrie, my colleague Cameron Kreis has a sort of a jokey line that he he puts in columns, and that's uh, that you know everyone got a master's in epidemiology from Google University <laughs> sure. this year. Right. You know, I know as a as a chief <laughs> investment officer, I'm I'm sure you you've uh, you've got that too. So um, there is this sort of echo of the the frighteningness of the Delta variant with this uh, Omicron variant. What have you learned about it? What, how are you th- thinking about it specifically? I mean, is it potentially a false alarm, do you think, uh, that, that everyone's sort of freaking out about this? I, I Look, this is me speaking as an investor and not an epidemiologist, <laughs> but there is definitely a chance that this is a false alarm. And, and again, I'd like I don't mean to downplay like the very real human impact of this, but when we think about how businesses, individuals, economies have been able to react in previous periods, we've gotten better and better with every month that goes by in this COVID environment. So assuming that this new variant is not a wholly new kind of type of disease, we have better, better therapeutics, we have people being more careful in their behavior. We have, you know, a large portion of the population vaccinated. So, so there are, we have a lot more tools today um, to be able to manage through this than we did before. And then put on top of that, we all know how to use our Zoom. We've all gotten used to working remotely. We, we know how to order things online. So I, I think the economy and people are in much better position to be able to handle a setback, even if it isn't setback. I still mess up the Zoom from time to time, but I, I know I, I, I do I, too. I, I probably, I probably. <laughs> yeah, w- w- we all do. Uh, and then, Kara, the other part of this obviously is the Fed. I know before we started taping the podcast, Mike and I had this conversation where I told them I, I had written this story saying that this is the most hawkish Jay Powell has been in about three years. I got some emails from Bloomberg users, terminal users saying, actually, you can't really use that word to describe him. So how much of what's happened this week, how how big of a role does Powell play in the sell-off that we saw over the last couple of days? And do you think that the reaction was rational? 
So I, I do think that the market had a bit of an overreaction, which is not uncommon, right? When you see a big pivot in, in a viewpoint with somebody like Powell, who is very influential, you can often see the market kind of overreact in the short term. And, and remember that we only just recently had renomination of Powell. So his sort of level of authority has been reinforced because of that nomination. So I think his word carries very heavy weight. He was also um, very clearly associated with the dovish camp within the Fed. And so to see him move a little bit more toward that hawkish end, I think, is quite significant. But, you know, I might agree with some of those terminal users who reached out. were like, I don't know that I'd call him a hawk. He's just a little bit more hawkish than he had been yeah. before. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I, my guess is he reserves the right to go be going uh, back to a dove in the in the spring of the summer if. Uh, yeah. Right. I mean, all we need are a couple of data points in the yeah. other direction, and he could very easily move back to the other side. You know, Kara. One thing I I know you you keep an eye on is the credit markets and and credit spreads. Um, I was reading some of the notes you s- sent over to us uh, with, with some of your thoughts, and you know. Pointing out that you know the the credit markets haven't really sort of freaked out uh, over these developments. I mean, spreads are widening out a little bit, but boy, historically, if you zoom out on the chart, you, you can't even notice it. To me, it's fascinating. I mean, you you certainly, I'm sure, have clients who are actively engaged in in credit markets or or at least dipping their toes in it. You know, for people sort of just looking at the stock market, though, there's this tendency to you know for stock investors to always seek a second opinion from someone they think is smarter in, in the fixed income markets. Um, and the, the temptation is look at, to look at credit markets and say, well, they're not really freaking out. This is a false alarm. You know, and I, to me, I, I think about it as I, the participants in credit and fixed income tend to be an entirely professional investing class, uh, whereas in the stock market, you've got Reddit and, and Robinhood and everything else and, and, and not entirely driven by you know, the CFAs of the world. I'm curious how you are looking at credit markets as sort of the the signal for the stock market. You know, the Fed, while Powell's a little bit more hawkish now, I feel like, you know, the Fed really sort of changed the game with their credit facilities during the pandemic, uh, actually being willing to to go out and buy corporate credit. Um, And I know they didn't really end up buying a a whole ton, but sort of the symbolism of it, of, of the Fed sort of breaking that glass and breaking that seal does that does that at all br- sort of sort of break that signal from credit markets that that we rely on in your opinion well it's so interesting that you mentioned about like stock investors looking to the bond market for confirmation and like i often think of stock investors versus bond investors almost like gryffindor versus slytherin <laughs> you know there, there's this like healthy level of competition between the two. And there's always this like real fealty to wherever it is that you came from. I won't say whether like who's the Slytherin house, <laughs> but, um, but, but there is like a fair amount of, um, of sort of like loyalty saying like, if you're a stock investor, no, 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 the stock market is the one that's giving like the real signal. But, but I think any investor is going to look for more than one single data point to confirm, right? Especially in very fast moving markets. You know, like I think back to the global financial crisis, I, I was then a stock analyst covering financial companies and we would use the credit markets a lot because they were often picking up signals, particularly in like short-term funding markets that the equity markets were missing. So, so there are times when there's one part of the market that's a little bit closer to the story. I think in this particular instance, like we really aren't, we're, we're not like looking at a lot of stress in general in credit. 
And so I wouldn't say that like credit markets are necessarily closer to the locus of the issue. It's just yet another kind of um, signal to be able to put alongside these other ones. Um, so in this case, you know, you're going to look at the, the, the full set of data that you can. Um, and what that's telling us is that there's nobody there who's raising the red flag. Mike, I feel like you'd be in Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff. Uh, those are Harry, Harry Potter references, right? <laughs> I, I think I picked up on those. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Mike. Okay, so you'll probably watch Harry Potter in like 20 years, the way you're trending. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. catch up with yeah. that eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Kara, I, I promise we talk about your strategy. Can you talk a little bit about what you're expecting for 2022? I think in one of your notes, you had said it would be really healthy for the market to churn sideways for a bit, which struck me a little bit because that might sound a little bit disappointing to somebody who was expecting a, a, a rally into year end. And so how are you thinking about the next couple of weeks? What are you expecting? And then looking into 2022, what are you expecting there as well? Yeah. So, so if we roll back briefly to like 2020, where we had this massive air pocket in the economy, corporate earnings took a really quick dip down. And then as the market started to recover, you had prices that were recovering way before earnings did, right? So all of the um, increase in stock prices that we had in 2020 was really driven by an increase in valuation. And when we roll forward to 2021, then we had a really big rebound in corporate earnings profits and some compression in valuation. And that's a healthy thing. And that's typically what we'll see coming out of a downturn. And so I would expect to see more of the same into 2022. We already have corporate profits that are at or near historic highs. We have really, really strong corporate earnings growth. We think corporate earnings growth will remain strong in 2022, but not as strong. But if we have a market that's just churning sideways for a little bit, it just gives time for those earnings to catch up with the prices that we have yeah. right now. Yeah, I always think of it as a correction on the other axis, you know, not on the price axis, but the but the time axis. And I mean, you know, yes. th- th- as far as valuations go, do you think that that top has been set? Uh, do you think? 
Never yeah. say never, right? I, I you know, I, I, I've learned that it's very hard to call like specific turning points. Um, I, what, so, and, and so valuations typically are, are a very bad indicator um, for market turns because we can stay expensive for a long time. We can stay cheap for a long time. But what they are good at doing is forecasting forward returns over like a medium term time period. Right now, valuations are high relative to historical measures. That doesn't mean that the market's going to turn down, but it does mean it should keep a lid on returns over the medium term. And then another one of your notes said, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it said that it's sort of a contrarian call that once inflation turns, we'll see a swift reversal. So I'm wondering if you can lay out the time frame around that and your thinking around that and how it potentially affects markets. Yeah. And so this is, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but like we, we order, we had some new cabinets in our house and we ordered new poles, right? Like simply like pretty like basic thing, but we ordered them about like 14 months ago (laughs) (laughs) and we've reordered them multiple times, Uh right? So they're sitting on some, like they were sitting on some ship, you know, off the, off the port. Um, so we ended up ordering three different sets, not knowing which one was going to arrive when. And in fact, we ended up getting two partial orders. So it was good, right? But someday that third order and the rest of the orders are going to arrive and we're going to have a bunch of polls that we don't really need. So think about that replicating all over the economy where you have, and in fact, I, there was just an article the other day about store owners that were starting to order additional amounts of inventory just to be prepared and have stuff on their shelves. So once all of those ships get unloaded, once that inventory gets on trucks and it gets to stores, there are going to be certain types of goods where we end up having more inventory than what we had originally forecast. And that's the challenge in managing this inventory in a time when like demand and supply are changing so rapidly. So, you know, it's a, you, you asked about a specific timing, and I think it will depend on the specific good that we're talking about. So, for instance, like lumber was one of those commodities that started to shoot up fairly early in this cycle. Um, And you started to see people who are reaching out and buying lumber ahead of time because they were worried that the price would keep going up. Well, sure enough, those prices are down like 60% or so from that peak. So that reversal came very, very quickly. So ones that went up more rapidly are likely to decline more rapidly. um, And it won't all happen at the same time. It'll be kind of sequenced out. Uh, We had the exact same experience. you know. Stuck in the house, my wife decided it's the perfect time to redecorate and, you know, ordered new dining room chairs. We got a new front door. I mean, we never got the first thing you wanted. Right. It's so frustrating. It's such a nightmare. But um, Kara, I think I always picture some of our listeners uh, sitting there sort of, you know, rolling their fingers on the desk saying, just tell me what to buy. Have this person tell me what to buy right now. So can you kind of break it down to us sort of what's attractive to you both from uh, you know, sort of an allocation standpoint at, at this point in the cycle and also, you know, uh, what you like in, the, in each bucket of allocation? So like one word of warning that I would have is make sure that your overall portfolio allocations are aligned with your risk level and your strategic goals, right? So, so you know, when you think about the incredible growth in stocks that we've had over the last year or two, it's very likely that folks have portfolios that are out of whack. 
right, where the equities have just become a disproportionately large portion of their overall portfolio. And so this is part of just being disciplined, right? And, and it doesn't matter where you are in the cycle. You should, you should be just like looking at that portfolio and confirming, yes, you know, I am comfortable with this level of risk. Make sure you're honest with yourself, right? You don't want to get over your skis and have too much risk. Then the market turns down and then you're unhappy. So, so that's very important. And that just goes to like the, the good hygiene habits of being an investor. And then when I think about, you know, our expectation for returns going forward for both stocks and bonds are more muted than what we've seen over the last couple of years. No surprise. Um, and as I said, that's part of, you know, earnings catching up with prices. Bond yields are incredibly low. There's only so much lower that they can go. Um, so it indicates more moderate returns going forward. Within the stock market, we talked about valuation, and this reflects my bias generally as more of a value type investor. Um, but we would have a preference for the types of companies that have you know, strong growth characteristics, strong balance sheets, have the opportunity to start to return capital or increase their capital return to shareholders. And you can find stocks like that in pretty much any sector. So it's not necessarily a sector bet, um, but having a higher preference or quality in general. I'm like 60% GameStop, 40% Shiba Inu. I've I, I got to make sure I rebalance that. That's, that's a good mix. It's a really good mix. Actually, Shiba Inu was down earlier this week, even though it had some really high profile around, uh, announcements around it. And uh, oh, oh, my, oh, my oh, my goodness. But Kara, can you talk about where tech fits in with what you were just saying? Because it struck me a little bit by earlier this week, we had expected some of the bigger names to maybe hold up really well during the sell-off days that we saw. I remember looking at the Nicey Fang index, I think it was on Wednesday, and it was down something like 2.7%, which really struck me. So how are you thinking about where tech fits in with your strategy? And are you expecting some of the names to be outperformers going forward? Yeah. Now, tech is a good example where you can find those really go-go stocks with super high aggressive valuations. And then you can also find some more mature companies who have like very solid earnings growth. So, so you, you can kind of find good examples of both types of stocks. And so, you know, in the sell-off that you were talking about, so typically when you get later in an economic cycle, the market tends to start to shift towards growth, right? Because Overall growth is harder to come by, so we're going to pay more of a premium for those companies who actually can deliver repeatable growth. But then contrast that with where we are right now, which is that a lot of those um, valuations are quite stretched relative to historic levels. So I think when you have that risk-off environment like we saw earlier this week, the market is punishing those that have the more lofty valuations and the less reliable earnings. So I think what the market is telling us is that in a risk-off environment, when we're worried, we're going to go back to that safety rather than looking for growth. Uh, Kara, one uh, bullet point in your notes I wanted to discuss a little bit. You say, once inflation turns, we will, we will see a swift reversal. Do you mean a reversal in the this recent dip we've had or, or a reversal in the the, the, the... Oh, I mean a, a reversal in prices. Oh, right, right. right. So, um, and, and, you know, I think that's worth drilling into a little bit more, right? There are sort of like two things going on with inflation. There's the supply chain disruptions that we talked about, right? And so the goods sitting off of ports and the multiple orders. Um, and I think that's where you'll see the really big swift reversal in price increases. And that's very concentrated in durable goods. And it's um, concentrated in um, a lot of types of prices that tend to be more volatile anyway. 
The other one that's more concerning, and this is a little bit more, I think, what Powell is looking at, is just like the the you know core, sticky, everyday type of inflation that's more tied to economic growth. And so, you know, we've had over the last couple of weeks, we've had some really strong indicators of almost a reacceleration of growth into fourth quarter. And the bigger concern is that very broad based growth will find its way into those like sticky kind of core prices. Um, so, so that and that's a part of the um, of the economy that moves more slowly. But certainly, those durable goods, anything affected by the supply chain, I think will reverse quite swiftly. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, yeah, so I, I keep wondering, well, how, how big of an effect can the Fed have on inflation until the supply chain stuff is sorted out? But, but I'm curious, so how, how you kind of look at that core stuff, would you look at sort of a trimmed uh, CPI measure or something like that? Or That's another one where like you have to look at like a, a ton of different ways of slicing and dicing because you're going to get very different answers and you can't rely on, you know, your, your standard core P- PCE because, you know, you look at it a slightly different way and you get very different numbers. So we've broken it down by, um, you know, core versus headline trimmed broken it down into like pandemic affected baskets versus non. And and I think what it's seeing is that there it's pretty, it's pretty easy to track that stuff that has been affected very directly by the supply chain, but it's hard to remove all of that from the core, from like the true core. But what we've seen is that in those specific indicators that we know are are, um, impacted by the supply chain, we have seen some of those start to peak and start to come down. So I mentioned lumber. Auto prices is another one where used car prices have started to retreat a little bit. And we've seen a number of other indicators like that that have started to sort of come on the other side. Yeah, stuff that's not sitting on a a ship somewhere. uh, Right, right. To get it. Tighten up your straight jackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, 
Vildana, speaking of core, obviously the core element of this podcast is the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Uh, and there's a lot of inflation in that area as well. The, the crazy things continue to keep arising. What, what are you got for us this week, Vildana? Well, first I have to apologize to everybody because I've been calling it the weirdest thing or yeah. cra- or yeah. which is it? Crazy? I, you know, I'm in my bed sleeping during COVID and I'm getting texts. Tell Vildana <laughs> it's the craziest things. It's not the weirdest thing. Oh, I should know better. I did get a submission from a listener. I have a s- submission from Alan Wagstaff in Minnesota, and he and I were actually exchanging messages via Twitter. He sent me a link to an eBay page that lists Spider-Man movie tickets. And at first, I think the top one was for $70. And then as I scrolled through, some of them were going into the tens of- what. Thousands to see Spider Man. So it it turns out. I mean, I like Spider Man and all, but wow. not for twenty five thousand dollars. So it turns out that advanced ticket sales for the movie had crashed AMC's website last weekend, and then AMC CEO Adam Aaron tweeted that the first eighty six thousand purchases of these special reserved tickets for a December sixteenth showing or, or some such, they were going to receive a Spider Man NFT. But there were something like 100 unique NFTs. So it was a super complicated story. All these tickets, I believe, were getting bid up on, on eBay because of this and, and some other auction sites just because of the tweet and, and all of this that was happening. Wow, that is fascinating. So thank you, Alan, for, for sending that in. Because there's NFTs, yeah. Sometimes I think that guy manages his company to optimize. <laughs> it's a strategy. Segments. He, he, he manages to get in there. That's pretty good. I uh, I don't know. I thought I had a good one, but that's pretty good. How about you, Kara? What's your uh, craziest and or weirdest thing? So my, you know, we, we talked about inflation, but we haven't talked about housing, right? So the housing market has been going crazy. And I'm here in Austin where it's been especially crazy. But sure enough, outside of Boston, there was a house that had had a serious house fire. So there was almost nothing left of the house. But sure enough, it went on Zillow for $399,000, as is. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I've been tracking it to see if it's actually sold yet. But <laughs> A burned house. That's a hot housing did they, market. Did they burn it to turn the house into an NFT? Maybe that's the... the, the, the... Oh, maybe. <laughs> but I, Put them on eBay and yeah, millionaires. I sometimes think the, the press loves that story. This house, that's a piece of junk sold, but... Really, it's the lot, right? I mean, the, the you know, I know it, you're it's right. It's like it, it might have that lot might that house was probably worth less with the structure on it than you know. Well, interestingly, so I looked and it's on Zillow, and the the estimate was pretty close to three ninety nine. I'm assuming uh, Zillow did not try to flip that one, given their their recent <laughs> uh, turmoils and. But you know, I like I like that crazy thing because it it uh, allows us to talk about a more serious topic, which is this insane housing market. And I think anyone uh, of a certain age who lived through the financial crisis to see house price gains like this is is very worrisome. I mean, do you is there any concern for you of of sort of a, a subsequent crash in housing prices? And you know, is the system hopefully better you know safeguarded uh, this time than than what happened last time? Yeah. So, I mean, a key difference between today and 2007 is leverage. So if you look at mortgage lending standards, they're actually still fairly tight. And go back to 2007, 
mortgage lending standards had been loosening for years and lenders had becoming increasingly creative in offering financing to individuals. And then if you look just in general at consumer balance sheets, people have, you know, we have among the highest savings rates that we've ever had. Consumer debt levels are really low. Interest rates are really low. So when you do carry debt, the service payments are very low. So I think that the fundamental health of consumer balance sheets is much, much better today than it was in 07. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, I'll stop worrying about that. I've got a long list of things to worry (laughs) about. My job is done. I'll, I'll scratch that one off. Uh, again, mine's from the alternative asset class, uh, the the collectibles class. So this is an incredible. I, I encourage everyone to Google the story from the Washington Post. Uh, really, a, a well reported story. It's about a letter from Catherine the Great, the uh, the Russian Empress of the uh, of the 18th century. She wrote a letter supporting mass immunization against smallpox. Uh, this is way back in you know the the late 1780s and for one thing i'm fascinated at at the fact that you know immunization goes that far back but this story lays out the history of of immunization and it's it's even more fascinating so prior to vaccination they did what is called variolation which instead of creating a vaccine they would take a piece of the scab from the smallpox or I hate to say the word pus, but take some pus from the smallpox wound and actually get that into your bloodstream. And that's how you would, uh, that's how you'd, you'd get the uh, uh, immunity to it. I gotta say, okay, I'm, I'm never, I'm never complaining about a shot again. Uh, right? I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not at all uh, vaccine skeptical. I gotta say, I, I think I would have been a little variolation skeptical <laughs> back, yeah. back in the day. But what's nuts is it's not even that far back. So the way, this was discovered in the West was a slave in the early part of the 1700s who introduced it in the U.S. And he said in Africa, they were doing this for hundreds of years. It, it's fascinating. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's, that it's is re- fascinating. I, I encourage everyone to look up that story. Uh, it, it gives you a really great uh, look back on that. And the reason she wrote this letter is because there was a lot of hesitancy and, and skepticism um, to this, which I, I can kind of sympathize with in this case. Uh, but anyway. To turn it into the craziest thing in Price is Right. So this letter she wrote uh, sold at auction along with a painting of Catherine the Great from some some famous artist. I don't know. But the letter is really the, the key thing. So time to play Price is Right. Karen, Vildana, start with you, Vildana. What would you pay for this letter from Catherine the Great? Denominated in British pounds, by the way. You, you got to, you know, you got to account for the FX. I'm notoriously bad at guessing these things i'm going to go i'm going to overshoot i'll go with 10 million okay i i will keep my i'll i will keep my poker face uh 10 million british pounds all right is that way too high i i, I will i will say that Voldana is the type of customers that uh auction houses dream of and you, you'll probably be getting some calls from 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 sales reps at uh at various i usually undershoot <laughs> by a huge amount so i'm, I'm really i'm I'm trying really hard. I might have tipped my hand a little bit there, but you Cara, might have. forget I said that. What what what's your bid? What what's your bid? Well, I think a very important question better? is: Are there NFTs that come with this? <laughs> I don't know. Because I'm going to change my burn, I'm going to change my price. You're free to burn the letter <laughs> and sell it as an NFT, probably for what what uh, uh, is talking about. Okay, so I'm going to take the under then. Uh, let's go with five million pounds. 
You guys are uh, big spenders. I thought it was a lot. 951,000 British pounds, which, which I thought oh, was wow. a Bargain. Yeah. Bargain. Vildana. Huge, huge like, we should have bought this. Let's go for it. Yeah. You should. <laughs> you guys should go go make a bid on that. And then we can hang it up behind all of our Zoom calls. There we go. That would be a there flex. That would be a flex in a Zoom call for sure. If you, yeah. That would be. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. I've got, I hang my wife's diploma because my diploma looks like. I don't know, something from uh, a comic book. It's not a very distinguished looking diploma. <laughs> I'll tell, tell you a little bit about, uh, maybe that colors a little bit about the university I went to, but my wife has a very distinguished looking diploma, so I hung hers up. And luckily no one has zoomed in enough to, to realize it's not mine. But <laughs> It's not your name. <laughs> <laughs> but with that said, I think that is all the time we have. Kara, really uh, great to have you on. Uh, uh, really good conversation. I hope we can get you back someday. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. Yeah, I, I, I love turning, talking about burning houses. Let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> An NFT. Yeah. Thank you, Kara. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Powell of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.